Hey everybody, welcome back to a new episode of Mostly Ghostly with your pal, Matt Fisher, and your better half of a pal, Ray Booten. How you doing over there, Ray? <laughs> I don't know about the better half, but better I'm doing half. good. That's what everybody tells me, you're the better half. Um, that's what my mother says. She says, Ray's a way better person than you are. I said, that's nice to know, Mom. <laughs> I'll say that's a joke because my mother, if she actually heard this, should take offense to that and go, what are you talking about? I never said that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we're, 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 we're coming to everybody still from in the middle of the big COVID-19 outbreak. Um, and, and, and a happier news uh, project me and Ray worked on, uh, was it two years ago or so, I think, an, an anthology film? Yeah. It was, um, uh, I feel like it, it's, Mostly Ghostly is a good place to talk about it because it kind of dives in the paranormal and a little bit of what we were talking about uh, on last week's episode with Bigfoot and such, where it's uh, the project's called uh, American Sasquatch. It's uh, it's an anthology film. We got a segment on there called Fair Game, where we did our own, uh, you know, Massachusetts version of uh, a Sasquatch story, uh, like 15-minute segment. And uh, coming out on Wild Eye releasing, I think in August, they said. So uh, we'll be on the lookout for that. So if there's anybody that's actually into paranormal, um, which you should be if you're listening to this, that in, in, in uh, cryptology and all that beautiful stuff, you know, and those that may not know me and Ray make films, um, that, that one's right up your alley, I think, to check out. But uh, we'll, we'll have more info on that as, as it comes to us. And, uh, well, today's episode is brought to you by North Shore Hauntings. Um, what we're going to talk about today is some of the folklore and urban legends and paranormal activity from uh, the North Shore of Massachusetts to can you continue with our, you know, haunted Massachusetts theme that we've been going with. Um, you know, we're kind of taking some stories from the Sherry Reve book. Um, you know, jumping around, grabbing some different urban legends, reading the story, discussing, you know, our yays and nays on it and our, our opinion of what, you know, what, what, uh, what's realistic and what might be a little fabricated, you know what I mean? But, like I said, we're going to pop, we're going to do the North Shore in this week's episode. And, uh, I'll start off with, uh, a, uh, a story called Witches and Warlocks and Devils. Oh my. As they, uh, a little throwback to the Wizard of Oz. You know what I mean? Keep it classy. And uh, we go with uh, the witch hysteria, hysteria of New England took hold in 1692 with the first accused being a wild Irish woman named Glover who lived in Danvers. Uh, word spread like wildfire to the neighboring community of Salem. Um, real quickly, I'll jump in and say one little fun fact that people don't know is that Sa even though Salem's got a bad rap and, and, and is known for like the witch trials, the witch trials didn't actually happen in Salem. Uh, it, ha it happened in a neighboring town, uh, possibly Danvers. Um, word spread like wildfire, um, but but it all but you know, and the rest is history. But it still bears repeating here because it is the source of a much legend and conjecture. 
uh, though in actuality their deeds were trivial, if anything at all, witches were quickly blamed for anything and everything. They were alleged to cause disease to livestock, uh, blight of crops, aches and pains and illnesses to both young and old, and pricking remotely of small children with pins and thorns. Indeed, a word of a child was enough reason to hang, a burn, or drown a witch. Now that in itself could create some serious bad karma and juju, don't you think, Ray? Oh yeah, I mean, uh, all you gotta do is piss the child off and that's enough. They can uh, let their imagination run and you're in trouble. And that's easy enough because children children are, are mean. There's some real mean, terrible children and they could definitely put the kibosh on somebody when they don't even understand what putting the kibosh on someone means, just knowing that they're going to go away. Maybe somebody didn't give them candy or somebody shooed them out of their yard and next thing you know, you're on fire in a field with people with pitchforks and shit. And what a bad time that is. Oh, yeah. Uh, if the executioners were brave enough to pay the possible consequences for their hasty actions, often witches who admitted their guilt were either imprisoned or set free. Uh, rather than executed on the account of possibility that they would cast evil spells on their executioners. So that's really weird that, like, if they admit to it, they're set free. But if they don't, they're burned. That's kind of a weird dynamic, don't you think? Well, I think what it had to do is uh, they had to admit to it, and then they probably had to deny it and uh, embrace the religion of the area at that time. And they were probably watched very carefully. Um, but the fear factor there, just that they, people didn't want that curse, mm -hmm. it's kind of like, okay, you admitted it, repent, okay, now go about your business, we're going to keep an eye on you. With how evil they think they, they these people were, I'm surprised that they let that happen, because, like, if you think so, if I thought somebody was true evil, you know, I would not trust them, I would think anything they said to me would be a lie to get them out of a problem, you know what I mean? Oh, I agree, but I just think that in that time, in the 1600s, uh, if you look at how they were, they were living in a new land, the fear factor, what they believed as far as evil being present, and also the ability of good to banish evil, yeah. I can see where they might embrace that. You think maybe pride or some weird ego would be also involved where they say, well, they bowed down to me, so it's okay now. I think it's that, and I'd also be kind of curious to take a look at um, whether the people that admitted it and got off, whether they were major landowners or not. Because mm -hmm. one of the things that did play into thing uh, that time was that if you were condemned and you were executed, uh, many of the senior people in the town, the powerful people, they took the lands. Mm -hmm. So that if you were, let's say, poor and you repented, okay. Uh, you can go free, just repent, that's it. Uh, because you had nothing they could gain by it. Part of it was the evil of the people that were persecuting as well. Hmm. It's like politics now, kind of. You know what I mean? Yeah, things usually don't change, things haven't changed that much. That is kind of crazy. That whole thing of them just accusing. The witch thing's always been scary in the aspect of society, in my mind, because it's it, it's it's trial without like guilty by suspicion you know what i mean and, and it, you know, there's really no way to prove right or wrong to it it's just the the opinion of the public and if you have an enemy 
which everybody would have enemies somewhere, you know, whether it's somebody who cut in line at the grocery store or at uh, the garden, whatever they'd do back then, or any or, or someone with a real gripe. All they have to do is accuse you of something like that. People must have been on pins and needles, like, all the time in situations like that. It's easy to kill. Like, that's probably from a time when kill, murder wasn't... Murder wasn't quite go to prison. It was like, well, I guess you shouldn't have ticked them off. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think that much has changed with social media and other things. If you profess, let's say you like something, yeah. um, immediately people jump all over you that and throw you in a category and you're evil, you believe in that. You could have liked a single sentence somebody said. Yeah. But they'll jump all over you and people become afraid to express anything because uh, they're afraid of the retribution. And it does get worse because there have been cases where out on the streets, even now, uh, people get attacked or people get persecuted uh, simply for expressing something or whether they're wearing something or they say anything. Yeah. Back then in that time, I can see where in the extreme of good versus evil – devil versus god i can see where it was really really bad you had to watch your back you definitely were paranoid mm. yeah it's crazy so um so outrageous was the popular belief that the devil had somehow coerced the citizens of the community into selling their souls and practicing witchcraft that new englanders even went so far as to hang a child of five and a dog or two um, Gallo, Gallows Hill saw many sad and unjust tragedies. I'm sure that place is haunted. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I also think that at the time, I mean, every, most people are familiar with the idea of cats as familiars. Mm -hmm. They believe that the devil could either influence or actually possess animals, or they were, uh, let's say, a servant of the devil would present itself in an animal form to be near the human. Mm. Uh, so, you know, killing a dog and the ruthlessness of it, killing a child, is understandable, but still very sad. Yeah, and the movie The Witch, I don't know if you ever checked that movie out from a couple years back. Um, the Devil's in, in a Goat. Um, but, okay, back to, um, as well as that, uh, in the, the, old elm, the old elm tree that stood on Boston Common until 1876 was said to have served as a gallows both for witches and for Quakers who stepped out of line. A kindred hysteria hung over the re region like a dark cloud, and nobody was safe from a twisted accusations. Often the accusers became the accused, and the victims became the victimizers. Many Salemites who had fallen under suspicion fled to far-off towns rather than risk an accusation that could lead to their death. One such woman, a fair maiden from Wenham, was rescued by her lover from the jail in which she'd been incarcerated. He then planted her safely among the Quakers near Merrimack. Uh, a Miss Wheeler of Salem was quickly whisked away by her brothers when she fell under suspicion. They rode around Cape Ann and delivered her safely to the witch house at Pigeon Cove. When Philip's English wife was arrested, he asked to share her fate, so both were shuffled to Boston, where they had the unusual arrangement of spending their days as free citizens and their nights in jail. Before their trial date in Salem, they, were, they went to church and heard the Reverend Joshua Moody say, 
If they persecute, if they persecute ye in one city, flee unto another. With that, the sensible clergyman opened the jail door where Englishes were imprisoned, allowing the unfortunate pair to escape to New York. They remained there until the majority of people in Salem came to their senses, and then they safely returned. Mrs. English died shortly after her return to Salem from the anxiety of her ordeal. And the good and wise Reverend Moody found it necessary to move to Plymouth to escape the wrath of those who couldn't let the famous witch hunt go, even though the witch hunt had died down. Many still harbored doubts and erroneous fears, especially when confronted with any unusual circumstance, as in the following account by Charles Skinner in the Myths and Legends of Our Own Land series. And with that, I'll read his, his little myth. In the Merrimack Valley, the devil found converts for many years after. Goody, Goody Moe's of Rock Village, who tumbled downstairs when a big beetle was killed at an evening party some miles away after it had been bumping into the faces of the company. Goody Witcher of Asbury, Amesbury, whose loom kept banging day and night after she was dead. Goody Sloper of West Newbury, who went home home lame directly after a man had struck his axe into the beam of a house she had bewitched, but who recovered her strength and established an improved reputation when in 1794 she swam out to a capsized boat and rescued two of the people who were in peril. Goodman Nichols of Rock Village, who spelled a neighbor's son, uh, compelling him to run up, up, and up one end of the house along the ridge and down the other end, troubling the family extremely by his strange proceedings. Susie Martin, also of rocks, who was hanged in spite of her devotion in jail, though the rope danced so it could not be tied. Uh, but a crow overhead called for with, and the law was executed with that. And Goody Morris of Market in High Streets, Newburyport, whose baskets and pots danced through her house, continually and who was even seen flying about the sun as she had been cut in twain or as the devil did hide the lower part of her there's no doubt that old new england had its share of weird happenings that were easier to pin on a witch than to try and figure out otherwise yeah that's uh yeah, so it's, that's a crazy time do you know how long the, the whole witch trial thing lasted like how many how many years or decades was that like was it unsafe to be the enemy of somebody over there and just in general or, or to be accused you know how long that whole thing lasted i don't know how long it lasted i do know that uh yeah it was very dangerous to be the enemy of anybody there are a lot of ruthless people yeah. behaving in ways pretty much as uh as nasty as what they said the devil was doing as far as executing all of those making land grabs uh executing children it was these people weren't exactly behaving in ways that uh i would say were anti-devil mm -hmm. uh, they were behaving more like the devil itself yeah it's craziness our um our next story hawthorne hotel a six-story well this six-story hawthorne hotel at 18 washington square west in Salem was completed in 1925 to accommodate the growing numbers of visitors to the community. The stately structure is located on the common, 
surrounded by historic buildings in the common historic district, the heart of Salem. If it hadn't been for the generosity of the sea captains who made up Salem Marine Society in the 1920s, the hotel wouldn't even be there. The Society's original building was built in 1766 and was raised for construction of the hotel, but a small building with nautical decor was added up on the rooftop of the hotel for Society to use as headquarters. In a meeting place, it was a condition of the property sale. There's something fishy going on where the Salem Marine Society first planted its roots. It seems some old sea captains may still linger on the property. A heavy nautical theme throughout uh, must make them feel right at home. Charts and records stored in the Society's headquarters on the roof have been found in disarray, even though the building is kept locked at all times in what was once the main brace restaurant, now, now called Nathaniel's, at the hotel. There was a large ship wheel that seemed to move on its own. Uh, it turned back and forth right before the eyes of customers and employees. And if anyone tried to stop the mysterious motion, it simply continued after they stepped away. The lower deck has, appe has appearance of an actual ship's interior. One employee refused to work alone in the room after leaving for only a moment and returning to find the tables and chairs he'd set up turned in the exact opposite direction. One of the hotel's 89 rooms, room 325 to be exact, appears to have been haunted, at least at one time. A guest who stayed in the room in, in suite of, with two bedrooms and one bathroom told the front desk clerk that he didn't realize he'd have to share his bath with another customer. He was insistent that he had heard someone in the bathroom and, and that whoever it was had closed his own door to the bathroom. He could see the light shining through the cracks around the door and he could hear the water running, the toilet flush so adamant that the, was the customer that the desk clerk escorted him back up to his room and showed him the layout, assuring him that again, that there was only one access to his room and he had the only key. Once the idea of sharing his room with the ghost sank in, the man decided to stay in the room for a week. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I'd want to stay in there longer myself. Uh, being a, we're, we're, you know, this whole, you know, upper North Shore with Gloucester and all that, it has, it's big for, you know, boating and, and captains and having that kind of, even, I mean, the perfect storm was based out of that area, you know, that's kind of one of our, one of Massachusetts's big movies of, of the past before it became such, like a Hollywood, not really Hollywood, but su such a time, a place where, you know, Hollywood comes to town at least a couple times a year nowadays. But back in the day, you know, with with movies like Perfect Storm and, you know, Goodwill Hunting and stuff, it was uh, not as common. So those are kind of our, some of our bigger, you know, bigger films from the past. So I wouldn't, and I, al I always consider the sea, uh, the sea people, like, almost, to ha they have the whole law of the sea, too, you know what I mean, where... When they're on the water, you know, your typical laws of man or whatever don't really apply where they can do as they wish. Um, I think people are very easily lost at sea, whether it be accident or on purpose. You know what I mean? What's your opinion on the whole uh, world of the sea life? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a tough life. Yeah. I think that part of what happens is when you have all of these port towns, and particularly when you go far enough back, 
not only recently but far enough back you had a lot of people that went to see that didn't come back yeah and you know, one theory out there is that the spirits would return to where they had been they'd return to port they'd return to their old places of residence or where they might congregate which leaves it wide open for these port towns to be very haunted particularly mm-hmm. These towns, as as old as they are, um, you know, you're talking like 300 years here, and then ships coming out of there. It, it kind of sets up a really a highway for the dead to come back into this area, particularly modern days with the, all of the energy generated by the number of people there now mm-hmm. to draw them back to the living and into these areas. I think that, uh, yeah, they're primed to be haunted, these, these uh, coastal towns that were shipping centers. Our next story, The League of Specters. This one has a very Native American feel to it, if I remember correctly. Um, Gloucester has been some, some pretty, has seen some pretty strange things. One of the strangest things of all was the noisy arrival in 1692 of a League of Frenchmen and Indians that couldn't be caught, killed, or even injured. Even though two regiments of Gloucester men went into the Cape Ann and battled them for two weeks, it was said that the windows of Plymouth rattled with the passage of the unseen horsemen. What's more, the mysterious League's arrival was marked by the simultaneous appearance of what looked like an Indian bow and scalp on the face of the moon. It didn't take long to realize that these men were not of flesh and blood. The colonists were sure they were devils wishing to bring moral perversion to New England. Everyone witnessed the apparition for two weeks. Though Cape Ann remained on guard against the Specter Leaguers for years because the town had no idea what or whom it was up against and when they might return, in return they did. Late one summer night after a noisy battle with the Phantoms had ended, Ebenezer Babson was returning home when he saw two men run from his house and disappear into the swamp. When his family told him moments later that they'd had no visitors, he assumed they were prowlers up to no good. So he ran out the door after them. On his approach, the two jumped up from behind a log, and he heard one say, The master of the house is now come, else we might have taken the house. Then he vanished again. Even deeper into the, they vanished again and even deeper into the swamp. For several nights, the men appeared wearing white breeches and waistcoats and carrying bright guns. But somehow they couldn't be caught. Neither could the many phantoms whose footsteps were heard during the time on the grounds of the barracks. Babson thought he might get lucky on July 4th when at least six uh, similarly dressed specters appeared and the real soldiers had them surrounded. Remarkably, Babson uh, brought three of ye unaccountable troublers to the ground with just one lucky shot and a very real bullet whizzed by his ear from one of the real troops in the exchange. As Babson and his men approached the spot where the alleged phantoms lay, they stood up and raced off into the woods, as if nothing had happened to them. As they ran, one of them was felled again by gunfire, but when Babson's men picked him up, he melted into the air. At that moment, a fierce jabbering in an unknown tongue was said to have animated throughout the swamp, presumably by the incensed League of Specters. Later, 
a man named Richard Dolliver came upon eleven of them huddled and chanting. He scattered them with a gunshot, but the elusive lot could not be brought down. Terror fell on people of Cape Ann, and for the better part of a month, the word was out that Satan was ambushing the good people of Gloucester with demons in the form of armed Indians and Frenchmen. To say that all hell broke loose would be quite appropriate. Stones flew about, barns were battered, and people often heard the marching of unseen soldiers after dark. At one point, the brazen troublemakers went right up to the Babson, uh, up to Babson, stared defiantly down the barrel of his gun, and laid a charm on it that made it flash in the pan each time he shot at them. Neighboring troops were brought in, but it was of no use. Battling with phantoms was futile, or so it seemed. Then one, then one night, the shameless and hostile league emerged from the swamp and moved toward the barracks, where twenty soldiers and their captains were keeping guard. The captain was determined to end the insanity and said, If you be ghosts or devils, I will foil you. He then tore one single silver button from his doublet, rammed it into his gun, and fired at the approaching league. With that, an untouchable army vanished. The effect of the silver bullet proved to be um, people that, let me see, people that the leaguers were not of humankind, but were of the devil. Later that evening, just as the wearied townspeople began to feel confident that their ordeal had finally ended, a cry went out to the demons. The, The demons were returning, this time with no other option at their disposal. The villagers' soldiers laid their guns aside, sank to their knees, and prayed. If they were truly at war with the devil, the power of prayer was the only effective weapon. As the name of God was uttered, the marching sound ended, and angry howls rang out from the atmosphere surrounding the village. It was the sound of good conquering evil. At long last, the evil leaguers had finally been vanquished. Now, do you think them kneeling down to pray would be... You think that 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 they were they were like devil spirits, or do you think maybe that was like a, a white flag, so to speak, of surrender? So they they felt the job well done, and they 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 retired for the for the evening, so to speak. Uh, I don't know. The power of prayer is strong. It is. Yeah. Um, as far as where that league came from, I'd be curious. Um, was there some tragedy or was there something horrific done to a group previous to that to make them want to stay around and haunt? Yeah. Well, that's uh, a, yeah. The, the other, another thing too would be <laughs> there may have been a series of incidences that got embellished. One of the things that happened around the time of the witch trials and several areas in Massachusetts was that when they used to store the grain in particular, I think it's a fungus, I'm not, not sure, would grow on it that when you ate it, it would produce hallucinations. Interesting. And uh, they attribute some of the, for instance, of Salem witch trials to eating the bad grain. I'm wondering if something, in fact, uh, transpired, and then what happened is they start embellishing it after a while. These people basically out of their minds seeing something. They did see something, mm-hmm. but the story they told about it was a lot larger than what they saw. And it could also be some of those people that say there was a massacre. They're trying to uh, justify the massacre by making the people evil coming back and eventually defeating the evil. Yeah, that was my take on it. I really don't know. It, it, could, it could even be two things, like I think you were saying, where it was either 
you know, people, some ghosts that maybe they killed in the past or, or you know, people down with them killed and they were haunting them. And when they, when they, when they took the knees, that kind of said, okay, you know, we've accomplished something and then that's all they really wanted. Or it could have been actual evil, devilish spirits. And cause I do believe in the power of prayer, you know what I mean? So like, or it could have been just, you know, an evil thing and they were prayed away by the word of God, you know? Um, what did you think about him putting his button into the gun and shooting it? Um, I guess it would be a musket back then, so it's possible to do that. But what's the significance to the silver? I know you there's silver with killing werewolves. You know what I mean? Like the folklore of werewolves. <laughs> um, I believe silver also has something to do with vampires as well. But um, what's your take? What do you, what's your knowledge on silver and the effectiveness of you know the supernatural? Uh, silver is usually used, uh, a lot of people have jewelry made out of silver because it can draw in spiritual energy, mm. but it's usually a positive energy. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, if he's using a silver button, that might dispel. Um, I tend to think that, uh, if you shove anything down the barrel of that musket and it's, isn't a good match for that barrel, you're more likely to have that thing back up or blow up in your face. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That one could be a little. That kind of goes back to um, that that story we were talking about with when we brought up the movie The Fog. You know how the fog rolled in and the ghosts were in it. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. I almost got that feel with it, but I feel like Gloucester probably has a lot of with it being such a port town and seaside um, town. I'm sure there's you know their whole cult. The, I can't say culture like it's another part of the world, but like a lot of their their local folklore and stuff revolves around the ocean because it's such like an ocean town, you know. Yeah, I've been I've been to Salem several times, yeah. and I found it interesting. On my list of places to go uh, is Gloucester. I want to check that out. We should go then. We should definitely go and make a make a thing of it. Once everything's cool, we're going to start traveling out, and we'll take the show on the road. You know. Yep. All right, we have next up is the shrieking Englishwoman. Uh, in the late 1600s, a rich Spanish ship was, see, more, more ocean stuff, was uh, commanded off Marblehead by merciless English pirate, merciless English pirates who killed every person on board but one, a beautiful English lady passenger. I could only imagine what they had planned for her. Uh, her hers was a more prolonged and savage death. Yikes! Than than that of her fellow passengers and crew. The pirates brought her ashore under the cover of darkness and brutally beat her at the ledge of the rocks near Oakham Bay. With that dirty deed done, they dragged her battered, nearly lifeless body uh, a little way from the shore in their boat and tossed her overboard. Their surprise, she came to the surface and clutched the side of the boat, crying. Lord, save me. Mercy, O oh Lord Jesus, save me. The pirates hacked at her hands with heavy swords until her fingers were severed. Then she slipped beneath the surface, and the sickening screams that filled the night were at once replaced by the unnatural, sorrowful silence. The woman and children of Marblehead had been awakened by the poor Englishwoman's startling shrieks as her life was being taken from her, but they were too afraid to help. Their husbands were fishermen and were away in their boats, and the woman and the children didn't dare attempt a rescue without them. 
lest they themselves become victims. Uh, the woman's mangled body, as expected, washed up on the shore uh, where her brutal ordeal had begun. The people cursed the beast that had done this to her and gave her a proper English burial in the spot where her body was found. The victim's cries and appeals continued to be heard for nearly 200 years on each anniversary of the crime. When her spirit returned to the scene, her haunting voice was so clear and loud that it was unmistakable, and most of the citizens of Marblehead were said to have heard it at least once over the course of those two centuries. Um, like that, I do believe that. That makes a lot of sense to me, at least. And uh, when she was on that beach, I feel like that assault was probably, there was probably some sexual assault going on, which is very, uh, makes things a little bit darker, you know what I mean? Um, and then the hacking of the, of the fingers, you know, was very, uh, scary. It was, it was, it was like creepy to read. It get a little, very detailed, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. it could also go into the aspect of, you know, how do people know that their, her fingers were hacked off to go into like, raised territory of who documented this because um, those those pirates aren't going to tell people they hacked their fingertips off and while she was under the water the crabs and stuff would start to eat and fish would start to eat and I think if I remember correctly uh, you know fingertips and stuff like that and noses kind of go first when things start to pick uh, pick away at you uh, she's lucky she wasn't eaten by a shark I, could, I, I guess you can say because usually when you go into the water bloody uh, especially at night, that's when sharks usually feed. It's usually a tough time. Usually, end up on the menu. Well, that's a lot of detail in that story for people who committed a crime and then didn't get caught. Yeah. Uh, how do they know all of those details unless yeah. someone later on did talk about it, uh, trying to explain away um, what was a, what was occurring there, her visitations and uh, her haunting. Yeah. Pirates were like the first Al Qaeda, you know what I mean? They were the they were the first uh, gang like gangs that uh, were just these groups of terrible people you didn't want to deal with. That if they came into your life, it was gonna have a negative effect, and they'd rob you and kill you, kill your family, rape your wife, kill your kids in front of you, all those horrible things that humanity does to each other, you know. And I don't doubt that uh, when they got drunk in a bar somewhere else, they started the bragging clock. about what they did, which some of the details of the story could come from that. It could, yeah. It, it could very also be, you know, like I said, with fingertips going and stuff, people had found the body, you know, gossip has always been gold. Um, I'm sure stories have evolved from that. Where, oh, my God, I seen a body, your fingertips were gone. They must have hacked them off on the boat. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I agree. But I wouldn't put it past them to, uh, for it to be 100% true. I mean, I wouldn't put, I wouldn't deny that. But um, there, there's always room for, you know, interpretation and, you know, things to be added to the story. You know. Next up, the Gloucester Sea Serpent. This one seems promising. Ah, uh, the mysterious sea serpent. Science says such a creature does not exist, but then science questions the legitimacy of ghosts, uh, no matter how much evidence is presented in support of their existence. It is such a far stretch to imagine um, 
to imagine that the creature somewhat akin to the mighty anaconda, yet surpassing it in size, can dwell in the depths of our oceans and lakes. Many respectable citizens along with the Atlantic shores have reported seeing giant sea snakes over the past several hundred years, from the earliest reported sighting of, in 17th century, uh, Cape Ann's the last known sighting far up north in Newfoundland at the close of the 20th century. It is true that the vast majority of sightings along the Massachusetts coast occurred in the 1800s when hoaxes ran rampant in journalism, yet many reports were from respectable and sound sources, such as Boston Weekly Messenger and the American Journal of Science and Arts. Others were taken from personal correspondences never intended for public viewing, effectively eliminating the likelihood of hoaxes and sensationalism. But why have the sightings markedly decreased in the past hundred years? Some speculate that it's because the fishing grounds off the coast of northern Massachusetts no longer have the abundant food supply the sea serpent once relied on. Uh, The ecosystem has been thrown off by years of heavy fishing, leaving the ancient serpent with no choice but to move further out to sea, and thus further out of sight, in search of more fertile feeding grounds rather than face extinction. The first recorded sighting in 1638 was reported by John Jocelyn. They told me of a sea serpent or a snake that lay coiled up like a cable upon the rock at Cape Ann. A boat passing by with English on board and two Indians. They would not have shot the serpent, but the Indians dissuaded them, saying that if we were, if we, if he were not killed outright, they would all be in danger of their lives. Very true. Three years later, Abadiah Turner reported a creature off the coast of Lynn, some being on Ye Great Beach gathering of clams and seaweed, which had been cast thereon by Ye Mighty Storm did spy a most wonderful serpent, a short way from ye shore. He was big round and ye thickest part as a windpipe. And they do affirm that he was 15 fathoms or more in length. With fathoms, what, feet, feet you think? I'm not sure what it is. I think it has. it's a measurement for uh, depth, but I'm not sure. Okay. Many personal accounts of sightings were gathered in 1817 by uh, New England Linnean Society, a group charged with getting to the bottom of sea serpent rumor. Sightings reached their all-time annual high that year, with 18 cases being reported. The vast majority of the society's witnesses agreed that the Gloucester uh, creature resembled a serpent because of its up-and-down manner of motion and its snake-like appearance. It was typical, typically said to be brown, six, 60 to 100 feet long, jointed from head to tail, and about the width of a barrel. It moved rapidly in a serpentine fashion, and was sometimes reported to have a long pointed horn on its head. It, uh, its head has been compared to that of many animals, dogs, sea turtles, horses, and snakes, with the size of the head proportionally the size of the body. One credible and knowledgeable witness, Cheever Felch, who, how can, how can someone with the name Cheever be uh, credible? I'm, I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, who encountered the serpent while aboard the USS Science told society. This is Cheever's story. 
his color is dark brown with white under his throat. His size we cannot accurately ascertain. We do not see his tail, but from the end of the head to the furthest uh, protuberance was not far from 100 feet. I speak with a degree of certainty. Being much accustomed to measure the estimate distance and length, I counted 14 bunches on his back. The first one, say, 10 or 12 feet from his head, and the others about 7 feet apart. They decreased in size towards the tail. His motion was partly vertical and partly horizontal, like that of freshwater snakes. I have been much acquainted with snakes in our interior waters. His motion was the same. Throughout recorded history, details of the sea serpent have remained consistent alike. Um, whether in reference to Loch, Ness, Loch Ness's Nessie, Lake Champlain's Champ, Lake Okanakan's Ogopogo, or Gloucester's own The Great New England Sea Serpent. After hundreds of eyewitnesses' accounts over the course of several hundred years, the sea serpent deserves more than just a chapter in the annals of cryptozoology. Yeah, those that big that's scary to me. That's pretty horrifying. I mean, you take the element of snakes. I think everybody, for the most part, like ninety-eight percent of humanity, uh, is probably creeped out by snakes. Something just otherworldly about it. You know, it goes all the way back to the Bible of of where the snake in the garden um, that was evil, and um, I think it just it's one of those things. Uh, now, if you if you count in a a hundred foot snake the size of a barrel, that's nightmare material right there, nightmare fuel for sure. Um, do I think such a thing would exist? I think it's quite possible. Like we've talked about before on the show, with um, you know there being so many so much things in the ocean we don't acknowledge or understand that's there. You know, it's very possible for something to be prehistoric like that or something that is just been around for so long and as you as you eat you continue to grow you know i think in i think in the darker depths of the ocean that we haven't really uh, unsurfaced yet i think that's where probably the majority of these big things live because they've had to grow there to adapt and live um and being through the being that they've evolved to kind of deal with the dark and super cold icy waters um, knowing that we can't go there, so they're pretty much safe from us, be it boats, dumping of toxic waste and chemicals, things trying to catch them. You know, there's, there's, in your typical ocean, there's just as much dangerous things out there for fish, you know what I mean, um, than there is probably in our world outside in the air, you know what I mean? Well, I think within the last... I don't know if it was 10 or 12 years, time frame may not be exact, mm-hmm. and the name may not be exact. I think they uh, discovered, I think it was called a coelacamp. Mm-hmm. It was a prehistoric fish that they thought was extinct, and that was caught, which kind of shook people up because it wasn't supposed to be around. You also take uh, the old stories of the Kraken mm. uh, bringing ships down that people attribute to the giant squid, and it's interesting that one segment there, they said its head was as large as its body were trailed or that snake look. If you take a giant squid at that time um, in that area, 
mm-hmm. when the fishing was plentiful, there would have been a great breeding ground for that or any other thing that we thought was extinct that is no longer extinct. I mean, not no longer, but we got it wrong. Yeah, I think when it said it had like the look of a, a snake, a dog, a horse, I think that there are there are the, the 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 kind of the the, the, the for, with the forehead being the thickest and then like kind of narrowing into the nose and stuff. I think they're all kind of the same, um, same shape of a, of a head. You know what I mean? So I, I don't I don't argue that at all. You know, I definitely think um, definitely think that what they seen was a snake type thing. Um, yeah, it's, it's now going back to sea creatures. I know you're, you're a fan of HP Lovecraft as well. How, what do you think about Cthulhu? You think that's just, uh, you think there's a reality within that or you think that's just kind of a story? I think there's a reality behind some of his stories. Yeah. Um, it's, you're going to have to go back probably, oh, 30, 40 years, 40 years when I first read them haven't done so recently and there were things in there which tied into other things i was studying and looking into at the time mm-hmm. um but yeah i love the way he describes it which is impossible without reading it to describe yeah but i really believe that uh there is something behind that and it would have been much more prevalent the farther and farther back you go mm. and and the idea of cthulhu was what uh the body, what did it, I know it wasn't the octopus head, but what was the body of? Was it a body of like a man? Or is it a body of another sea creature? Uh, best I can recall, another sea creature. Because that makes sense of crossbreeding, like a crossbreeding situation. I think you could run into that and animals crossbreed and you know what I mean. So it's, it's every now and then something crazy will pop up and, um, you know, I'm not, or, or deformed, even a deformity, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm sure, well, I don't even have to say I'm sure, because there's proven, there's been proven pictures of different fish being mutated into, be it because of the toxic waste that's thrown into the ocean, or just whatever it is, you know, free, a freak of nature situation, you know, they're, they're, them being deformed or coming off, you know, you know, different having multiple fins the faces i've seen i've seen fish with the face of humans you know what i mean like there's all types of weird crazy things out there and i wouldn't be surprised like cthulhu it's until we really one day which i don't know if we ever will but and i don't know why we can't which is weird because all you need this day in technology i don't know how we how we don't have the whole like we don't have submarines that can withstand you know a bunch of pressure and 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 temperature that can't just go deep and have a big flooding of lights on it you know i'm sure things would swim away from the light but they could do like an infrared or something like that's very maybe they don't want us to know what's exactly in the ocean maybe what's in the ocean could be horrifying well lovecraft referred to them as the ancient ones yeah and maybe we're not meant to discover them at least not yet not yet yeah that's the scary part uh did you check out that um uh the uh the color of uh, the color of space uh it's a new nicholas cage richard stanley film next time next time you're over i'll let you borrow it it's pretty good it's uh it's a it took it from hb lovecraft story 
But um, there's been a lot of talk about that recently. He's doing two more Lovecraft movies. I'm sure you've seen that picture that's floating around of Cthulhu on the beach. Have you seen that? Like coming. Which out, one? There's a picture of Cthulhu coming out of the water with like a human standing on a beach. I've seen. Uh, yeah, I've seen pictures. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. But yeah, I think uh, I think there's the, the you know the sky's the limit on what's actually in the deep dark ocean, and I don't know why we can't get in there, but I feel like we never will. But I don't know why we won't because it's a whole questionable thing of why didn't we? Why don't we ever go back to the moon? You know, there's people that will debate and say we never went to the moon to begin with, which there's a good argument in that when you bring up why we've never gone back. You know, but, yeah. But uh, yeah, maybe the deepest parts of the ocean are the, is the same deal. Maybe they don't want to bring bring stuff down there because then. We'll see all the the crazy shit that they've been dumping that they shouldn't have been dumping forever. You know what I mean? Nobody really knows why. But that's the crazy thing with it is like, that's why, that's why it's really creepy when you think about it. Because when they dump that toxic waste into the bottom of the ocean, it's going to get whatever, the pressure is going to get so, so hard on it that it will bust it open. So now you have toxic waste dripping all over these weird creatures to begin with on the bottom of the deepest parts of the ocean. And it only makes sense for them to deform them into something horrifying and make them be, you know, sometimes make them bigger in size. And uh, hopefully none of that shit ever does crawl out of the ocean because we could be in like, we could be in some serious trouble. You know what I mean? Well, there might be a little bit more truth behind Pacific Rim and Cajus than we like to admit. Yeah. Horrifying. If we imagine a world where we actually had to go war, go to war with sea creatures in the future, because they finally find their way out of the ocean and they've adapted maybe to being able to breathe oxygen. And, um, yeah, we'd be in some real trouble. We'd be in trouble. Well, yeah. Well, there's a lot of creatures now over uh, evolution that, uh, I mean, we all came from the water. There's at least one scientific uh, stream of things, creatures coming out of the water. I mean, the worst case scenario I could see in the future where we'd all be in trouble, where a creature that lives particularly, whether you consider, um, I think it was a Fukushima leak of the radiation, then you've got the pollution, Mm -hmm. and you've got giant sea creatures, and you're talking about depths of the ocean. Bingo, Godzilla. Oh, shit. Ray might get his dream come true after all. You might be able to meet Godzilla. <laughs> the, uh, but, yeah, that'd be something interesting. I could see people at the beach, people, things just running up on land, big, big, weird crab-like things running up on land, grabbing them, bringing them back into the water. Um, you want to talk about closing down the beaches. You want to talk about the beaches being a thing of the past, then we'll have these gigantic fences at, at that maybe that could be a post-apocalyptic film we have these gigantic fences electric fences that, that line all the beaches the seasides because of the things that come out we gotta be we gotta protect ourselves from but i'm gonna roll in roam into the next story um the next story is the house of seven gables um you could you could just as easily call it the house of seven ghosts because at least that many have been encountered on the grounds over the years, including the spirit of Susanna Ingrisol, of a Victorian boy 
When when they said her name was Susanna, I did not expect it to be a Victorian boy. Um, a Victorian boy in the attic. A dressmaker. That makes sense, though. And maybe even a slave or two. I think I read that wrong because those are the pe- that, that 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 wasn't the boy's name. Those are the people. You got Susanna Ingersoll, a Victorian boy in the attic, a dressmaker, and maybe even a slave or two. What racism not to give those slaves names. Um, the House of Seven Gables is the oldest 17th century wooden mansion still standing in all of New England. We should definitely go check that out. Its sprawling grounds make up an entire historic district on the National Register of Historic Places. The world-famous gabled house at 54 Turner Street on Salem's Harbor was built in 1668 and is also known as the Turner Ingrisle Mansion. The great novelist Nathaniel Hawthorne spent much of his time visiting his cousin Susanna Ingrisle there. She provided the uh, inspiration for some of his characters and lived in the house until her death at the age of 72. Hawthorne's novel, The House of Seven Gables, was based in part on his experiences in the home, many of which were paranormal in nature, but the central theme of the novel is ancestral guilt. His great-great-grandfather, John Hawthorne, was known as the Hanging Judge for his involvement in the Salem Witch Trials of 1692, and Nathaniel felt tremendous guilt over this. According to Don Nutila, director of marketing and guest service at the House of Seven Gables, Hawthorne's novel begins with Colonel Pynchon wanting to purchase the land from Matthew Moel. Uh, the Moel refuses, but Mo- Moel refuses. Therefore, Colonel Pynchon declares Mal to be a witch. See, that's what we we're talking about. Uh, so Mahul is convinced and is convicted and hanged. Before he is hanged, he looks at the at Pynchon and says, "God will give you blood to drink." Interesting. A curse then hangs over the Pynchon house until it is finally broken when Phoebe. Uh, a Pinchian in Hollegrave, a Mali, fall in love generations later. In reality, the widow Moore owned the property on which the Turner Ingersoll mansion now stands. John Turner purchased the land in her house. As you can see, Hawthorne used the premise of a true story and fictionalized it. Some scholars also believe that Hebezaba Pinchian is based on Suana, Susanna Ingersoll. Hawthorne was born in 1804 in the house several blocks away that was later relocated to the grounds. Today, visitors can tour his childhood home, said to be haunted by a dressmaker who still sews at a phantom sewing machine and wanders around the house. Many besides Hawthorne have claimed to have encountered ghosts on the grounds of the House of Seven Gables. Several sources have reported a boy in Victorian clothing in the mansion's attic. Susan Ingrisle's spirit is also believed to linger, or at least the spirit of a woman of similar appearance. Photographs of the windows taken from outdoors have revealed what looks like faces in them. A whole lot of unexplainable clanging and clattering seem to go on throughout the premise. premises. Uh, and bathroom fixtures turn on and off on their own accord. Doors open and close, hinges click, all with no assistance from any living person. Most of the ghostly behavior is attributed to the slaves who pass through the house as part of the Underground Railroad. 
in such richly historic place where there's so much for tourists to see, there's also much that remains unseen. Secret passageways, hidden staircases, and a ghost for every gable. So I've never heard about that place, but being that it's supposedly one of the most haunted in the area, I'd love to go check it out with you. Uh, many years ago, I went there. They, oh, really? On a tour, they actually show you some of those secret passages and explain what they, what they were used for. I would love to return there now mm-hmm. and look at it with fresh eyes, uh, but a different view. I was very young, and it was more of a historic thing. Uh, I'd look like to look at it now more in a paranormal yeah. area and see what's going on there. Did they talk about the paranormal side of things while you were there? Uh, not much Not much that I can remember. Yeah. All I know is that looking at it, I said, oh, yeah, okay, that could be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I wonder what the um, I wonder what the backstories are on all those different spirits that are there. Um, you know, I'm sure, like the Underground Railroad, like it said, it was probably some slaves that didn't quite make defeat. Um, the boy in the attic is interesting. Um, the 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 dressmaker is interesting. Um, yeah, the lady. Oh, we're also yeah. we're also taking a look at. We talked about this this uh, seaports, and Salem was a seaport. Mm-hmm. So you've got the the tragedy with ships going out, not coming back. You've got the witch trials, which we talked about, mm. and there's all of that energy and that haunting going on. Then you've got the Underground Railroad, and you've got the slaves, so you're piling it on in that place, never mind whatever the personal relationships may have been or the tragedies associated with the little boy or a seamstress. Mm. You start putting all of that together, and you've basically got a power center or something, something to occur. You've got a lot of energy there from a lot of different sources all coming together in one spot. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of... Whenever they get places where multiple people have passed on, it's always got high energy. Oh, yeah. For shizzle. Um, next up is Dogtown, the Lost Village. At one time, Dogtown Commons had a population of about 100 people. Not bad for one of the earliest settlements in our country. That was in 1692. Today, all the remains is a wooded, rocky plateau with an occasional part of a foundation, such as stone steps or broken stone walls buried beneath the dense brush. This was once a thriving little community whose inhabitants lived off the land and by their wits, or should I say, by their varied magical gifts. Many of the inhabitants at one time were witches, so the ghost town is sometimes called Village of the Lost Witches. That could be a nice future film. Or oh, the, yeah. Or The Village of a Hundred Witches, even a better title. It has also referred to as Village Lost in Time. And indeed, it is. All our appropriate names. But how did it get this official name of Dogtown? When Dogtown was first settled... It, cons- it consisted of a, of a hardy bunch of colonists who preferred the, safe, uh, the safety of the rugged, boulder-laden terrain to the adjacent pirate-infested shoreline of Gloucester and Cape Ann. However, as soon as the coast was clear, so to speak, and the pirating British had left the area, the original families of Dogtown moved to the more promising communities they'd previously avoided. 
The only remaining inhabitants were widows who refused to leave the homes they'd built with their loved ones, but their husbands were lost to sea. And without, equate, uh, without adequate uh, manpower to protect the women and the children, they found themselves in a very vulnerable position. So they armed themselves with guard dogs. The years went by, and the few remaining residents of the settlement succumbed to old age. When the last person finally passed on, all that remained were empty houses and dogs that roamed wild. Hence the name Dogtown. Dogtown was vacant for only a short time before the local lunatics, hobos, and crones realized they'd hit the jackpot and stumbled upon the whole neighborhood of free turnkey homes. They were a colorful bunch, all right. And when the witches and warlocks came to town, the new inhabitants had no problem sharing the remaining homes with them. Uh, the personalities that came out of the last batch of townspeople to inhabit Dogtown in the late 1700s and early 1800s were unparalleled, and many of the residents' names uh, deservedly went down in history. The snobbish hailer and the fortune teller Easter Carter, self-proclaimed wizard John Woodman, Old Roos, a freed slave who dressed and worked like a man, uh, the fo uh, formidable broomstick-riding witch Margaret Wesson, and the generous Becky Rich, whose remedy of natural herbs and leaves was a sure cure for any ailment. There was also a wannabe dentist. That dentist seems like a awkward, <laughs> awkward in that group. Um, and God help the woeful patients who sought treatment from him, for he actually was a sea captain by trade. Another fellow made a living applying uh, his services door-to-door -door ironing and knitting. A couple of young witches found that uh, prostituting bewitched young sailors was a lucrative venture. The most feared of all the Dogtown witches was Tammy Younger, a large woman who could stop passerbys with the evil eye, freezing them in their tracks and then summon their belongings to drift through the air right to her feet. That's what they said, anyway. Uh, the last of the Dogtowners was, a, was Black Neil Finson, a hobo and friend of the witches, who died in 1814. He was found alone, half-starved, and frozen digging and clawing in the dirt beneath the house of the prostitute witches, believing until his dying day that the profits they made were buried in their cellar. He must have thought highly of them because he believed their wealth was substantial. After being removed from their house by local officials from Rockport, Finson was sent to the town's poorhouse where he died shortly after. As if the rich history of Dogtown's populace weren't interesting enough, in the late 1800s things got even more peculiar. When a philanthropist named Roger Bapson hired stone carvers to carve good words and phrases into the boulders that adorned Dogtown's land. It was a nonsensical request because the land was practically barren at the time, and nobody, save the occasional visitor, would even see them. The words carved in the stones include, Use your head, help your mother, study, good old... Uh, puritanical advice, perhaps to cleanse the environment of its former wilder days, but the past will always linger there. Visitors determined enough to follow the footpath uh, to Dogtown are rewarded with a sense of peacefulness as their eyes focus on the etch words memorialized by Babson. What better place to meditate than among the lonely trees within earshot of the ocean, perched on a boulder bearing a simple spiritual message. The only thing that might break the self-induced trance is the distant scream 
of a phantom lunatic or the muted shout of an angry fortune teller of yesteryear. A muted shout, that that seems like it crosses itself out, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, oxymoron. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Such haunting sounds are still reported from visitors to Dogtown where the past stirs only occasionally before settling back down to uh, reverent calm. Now, with this one, I thought that they were going to try and say that all these widowed wi- wi- widowed women were witches because they were by themselves and didn't want to deal with society. And I don't blame them in a way because society can be wild. And, you know, in a situation where you lose the loved one, you lose your husband or whatever, and you don't know, you know, if they're dead or if they're stranded, that causes a lot of alarm. And I feel like even more so back in the day, people would probably give an awkward eye to a widow. You know what I mean? Thinking yep. that they must be they must be something up they they must hold so much bitterness for what happened that they're evil. You know what I mean? But they're kinda like the first of cat ladies, but dog ladies, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, I, I do. I think that if there is any energy there, the initial energy would have been uh probably very sad. Yeah. And it would have been their energy as as they passed alone. Mm-hmm. in their old homes they wouldn't let go of. Yeah. I can see that. As for what transpired afterwards, I tend to think it's a mix, a little bit of reality and a lot of legend. Mm-hmm. If you had a bunch of outcasts and they lived in an area, everybody around there starts talking about them and spinning tales, exactly. so to speak. Yeah. So you could have some witches there. You could have some homeless there. Um, you could have some ex-slaves there. Mm-hmm. But they weren't part of mainstream society, so they were subject to a lot of stories being told about them. And living under those circumstances, and possibly many of them dying there Mm -hmm. under those circumstances, their spirits could also be trapped there because they weren't necessarily happy, particularly if they have one that can, you know, give you the evil eye and move things around. And with all of these these stories coming out of there, they doesn't sound like they were a happy bunch there. They were the outcast. So that's a negative energy in that area. Yeah, I agree. It's like whenever people are exiled, you know, and, and shunned, the, the, the group, they, you know, they, 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 they friend, they get friend, they buddy up with other people that are exiled with them. You know what I mean? I think that's more the case. And I've always kind of felt that way about witches uh, and people that were called witches and stuff where it's like, they're just people that are kind of exiled and excluded from society. And I know a lot of people, you know, that when when people kind of look look down on them or they're excluded, they take that there's a whole persona that people develop of like, um, well, if you think I'm the weirdo, I'm going to play the weirdo. You know what I mean? Oh, I, I definitely agree. I also think that mainstream society... Uh, needs to make up stories to justify their ignoring them, mistreating them, isolating them. Yes. Uh, to put themselves above them. Yes, yeah, so they don't look like bad people. Yes. Yeah, so they don't look like bad people, and meanwhile, the people that they're doing that to are suffering more. Yeah. It's true. It's crazy darkness, but uh, that's what that is. I, I wouldn't mind checking that place out, too. That seemed kind of cool with the, you know, the, the old abandoned town. That sounds, that sounds good. Yeah. We've got more witch stuff coming up. We got uh, Rockport's Witch Wesson. Everyone knew not to invade Margaret Wesson's space. You don't mess with old Meg. 
they'd say. Why? The crazy old bat was said to fly her broom over the New England coastline and cast the evil eye. At whim, Meg lived in Rockport near the other popular witches. Uh, grounds called Dogtown Commons, where we just heard about, until her death by mysterious gunshot wounds. That sounds like... Mysterious gunshot wounds sounds like people that talk about the Clintons. <laughs> but, um, uh, from a gun that was fired 500 miles away. Interesting. Two shoulders, two soldiers from Gloucester were at camp in Nova Scotia during the siege of Luzenberg. In 1745, when they became annoyed by a crow that seemed to be taunting them, calling angrily and fluttering about their heads, they tried shooting at it and throwing stones, but nothing deterred it. Um, it had no intention of ending the harassment. Clearly, it meant business. Finally, it occurred to the men that the bird had to be a witch. And not just any witch. It had to be Witch Wesson, the woman from Rockport, whom they had foolishly offended in a heated argument before leaving town. The woman who promised she'd teach them a lesson, even if it was the last thing she did, realizing that their luck had ran out, and old Meg had finally caught up with them. They, were, uh, they cut two silver buttons from their uniforms. The silver button from the uniform is, you know, a powerful weapon. <laughs> I guess back in, the, back in the day, that was like the thing. Uh, pure silver being the preferred antidote for evils of witchcraft. They loaded the buttons into their guns and took aim at the crow. With the first shot, the crow's leg was broken. And with the second, it fell dead. When the soldiers returned to Rockport, they learned that Meg had fallen with an injured leg at the very moment they fired on the crow. And she died shortly thereafter upon examination of her body. Uh, the same buttons the men had used to take down the bird were found in the old woman's flesh. Um, I, th I feel like that's more... Those soldiers probably killed her before they left Rockport, and then they came back later to, <laughs> to find the dead body more believable than the old, you know, them shooting her as a bird. I, what they're going for, I think, is that she took the form of the bird, and... Which is very thematic, you know, very dramatic, like a movie. Um, but I don't know if I'd quite put my belief in that. But you'd never know, I guess, from the spiritual thing, because that kind of mixes into the whole thing with voodoo dolls and stuff. And I've heard, uh, you know, like astral projection type deal. Um, but yeah, I to look at that story, I'd almost say that they probably had beef with their shotter left her because you got to figure that they're traveling back and forth to these towns isn't one of those things that you can do in five minutes it probably took a day or whatever um and yeah you know how do they know how do they know that at the exact time that they shot this bird is the exact time that she died you know what i mean it's kind of I think this is there. Even if even if there was some truth to it, I think that the tale. Well, to me, it's, it yeah. sounds like they're trying to establish an alibi there. Exactly, I agree. I think that they killed uh, her before. Unless you unless you're going to believe that she was a shapeshifter, and they were able to take one out. But then again, why was she found back in her home? Right. Yeah, I agree with that. I almost feel, and they said they had previous beef with her. I probably feel like my guess is they went to they they. It could have been a prostitution deal gone bad or or something crazy like that, and I feel like they probably killed her, left her there, because who's checking up on her? Nobody's checking up on her. And then when they came back, 
Uh, and she was dead. They they spun the tale of oh there was a, a crow and we shot the crow and everybody thinks she's a weird witch anyway. So it's a believable story. Um, but my guess is it was probably some type of deal gone array. Whether they were in there, I know that she was the bigger one. She was probably uh, not so attractive, but maybe that was their deal. Maybe they were all about that, you know. Um, and you know I think they killed her, and uh, they came back a couple of days later or whatever and said oh. Uh, yeah, so we killed this crow, uh, and we I, it had, we killed it the same way, and then this lady died, this witch died the same way, you know. But I'm with you. I think it was a, I think it was a uh, a cover up. I think it was all just like a story to get away with the murder. But at the end of the day, who's going to care about a witch being killed back then? You know what I mean? Oh, exactly. They. They do the deed, they go off somewhere, they have some drinks, they make their story up. Mm -hmm. um, then they come back and say, well, we were over there. And, yeah, no, no one is, is going to, in that time frame, support the witch as opposed to the soldiers. Mm -hmm. they, they're going to go with the soldiers, and they got away with it. They probably left something there that they went back for, and they, they needed that excuse, because otherwise they could easily just leave her for dead. And nobody would have any idea who killed her, why why they killed her. Probably not even know that she's dead, because like I said, who's checking in on a witch? No, nobody's checking in on a witch, you know. Unfortunately, only her dogs, only her, her her dogs that are roaming around, probably eating her body. Um, rest in peace, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, they had to pl they had to plant the buttons. <laughs> they had to pull out the slugs and put the buttons in her. Um. Yeah, it's weird. It's a whole weird. The whole thing's kind of weird. It definitely sounds more of a. They killed her. I I believe I believe they had a beef. They killed her in person. Came back a couple of days later and said, "Hey, oh yeah, we got this story to go with it." You know. And anybody at that time, considering she was a witch, mm -hmm. uh, and who they were. They'd immediately support them, whether they believed it or not. They didn't want to piss them off. They just committed a murder, number one. Mm. And she was it. She was witches were unpopular at that time. She was the witch, so it's in their mind. It's like okay, they got rid of her. That's fine. Oh yeah, we believe you. It's weird. I want to. We'll have to do an episode on the the witches and the whole that whole era because I would like to know how long it lasted of them killing witches, and I'd like to know what exactly changed. For them not to want to kill people just to be, that are just accused of being witches, and how it became okay to be a witch, but you have to kind of live outside of town. I wonder what changed that whole thing. At some point, I know after a lot of the trials, the governor of Massachusetts stepped in and just said, "Stop." Yeah, really. maybe he That's was. <laughs> his just sister stop. probably got That's killed. It. They probably Enough. killed his Enough. wife. His wife was probably accused of a witch or something, and they hung her up or something. Well, the accusation enough might be enough for him to, well, might be the thing that made him say stop. I don't know. Yeah. Scary. All right, our next story is Dungeon Rock. Uh, Harim Marble was a, the man, was a man who spent his entire life and squandered away his life savings, seeking the treasure alleged to be buried at Dungeon Rock in the Linwoods Memorial Park. He claimed that the spirit of 17th century pirate Thomas Veal had contacted him from beyond the grave which in this case was actually the cave in which Veal had been uh, entombed during an earthquake in uh, 1658 and told him where to find his treasure. 
So he purchased the property and began digging. It was to no avail. Like many treasure hunters before him, Marble's tireless efforts provided futile. When, he de- when the determined man died in 1868, his, his son carried on the family's obsessive quest for the buried treasure until he too died in 1880. The Marble family is buried just a short distance from the place that uh, consumed their lives and ultimately left them destitute. Some believe Haram and his son may still be laboring in the cave as single-minded in death as they were in life. They, uh, if they aren't the ones haunting it, perhaps it's Veal himself, stubbornly refusing to let go of his material possessions, even though they are no use to him now. The tunnel at Dungeon Rock is open only during the day, and Iron Door seals the entrance at night. Many people have reported taking daytime photographs of orbs and other types of spirit energy while in the cave. Others have heard moaning, crying, and growling that can be, can't be explained. And some have even had success capturing spirit voices on tape. The sense of being watched and the feeling of cold chills have been enough to send more than a few people running from the cave. There's really no doubt that the cave is haunted. The only question is by whom. And of course, whether there really is buried treasure at Dungeon Rock. That's kind of cool that you can go there during the day. But that's another place we should pop in for a day trip and investigate and do a show live on live on location. I I agree. I also think that if you're talking about a series of people being obsessed with a place like mm-hmm. that, yeah, they're definitely not letting go. Mm-hmm. And between their disappointment not finding anything their obsession during their whole life. Um, being trapped there makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense, yeah. Obsession is a powerful, powerful uh, vibe. And they're buried near it. Now, the other dude was buried, died in it, right? Supposedly, he was in the tomb. Uh, the tomb one died there. in it, and that family, they're buried near it, and it was their whole life. Yeah, that that is... Uh, perfect recipe you steer, steer that pot together and you get a haunting i agree with that yeah for sure it's um yeah yeah for sure that that obsession part is it's like hate that you know the, the power of that emotion is just as much as hate and love which are two other things invent revenge you know the yep. big, big ingredients to why people stay around or spirits stay around after the body's dead and our our last last story is the gentle son. Um, according to author Charles Skinner, Jacob Hurd lived at Ipswich with his wife and meek son in the late 1600s. He was as fearful of witches as most others caught up in the witch hysteria, and was suspicious of anyone who didn't conform to what he considered normal behavior. This posed a problem for his own son, who seemed to dance to the beat of a different drummer. The boy had no interest in farming or learning uh, an honorable trade. He just wanted to play the electric guitar. Uh, Very much the introvert, he kept to himself. Uh, Walking alone and talking to the birds, he was happy just to make up rhymes. There you go. Um, Pick flowers and dream his days away. One day he decided to share a vision he had with his parents. He told them he had seen a golden horse with a tail and mane of silver on which he had ridden over land and sea, climbing mountains and swimming rivers. His father was mortified, thinking his son was certainly bewitched, 
And he yelled at him, Thou knowest you art lying. Uh, With that, he struck the child. The boy staggered into his mother's arms, and by twisted coincidence, he fell very ill that night. In a feverish state, he raved about his horse and the places he would see. His guilt-ridden father sat by him, too torn up inside to speak. He never left the boy's side. Just before the youngster closed his eyes for the last time, he looked at his father and said he heard his horse pawing in the road, and his father could have sworn he actually saw it there too. Then, with a peaceful smile on his face, the child slumped into his pillow lifeless. Sometime later, Hearn set out early to see three witches hanged, unaware that his own death day had arrived as well. His body was soon discovered by the roadside with an Indian arrow through his heart and an axe in his head. A little overkill there. Mm -hmm. Um, That night, his horse came flying down the road, spattered with blood and foam. Hurd's grieving wife ran to the door horrified, but the bloodied horse charged before her, changed before her eyes. Its side suddenly shone like gold in the sunlight, and its mane and tail were glittery silver. Instead of crying out as the horse passed by, she caught her breath for there. Before her very eyes was her dearly beloved son riding on horseback. His face was lit in the heavenly glow, and he threw a kiss at her. Her little poet lived on in spirit, where all the dream, his dreams finally came true. Now that's weird. My take on that a little bit is the fact that I think maybe if the father was one of those people that were down to, to hang up witches, um, take, taking into consideration the, the, the aspect of witches being real and can spin these evil yarns and spells, I almost feel like him being a known person to execute or be down or be involved with the execution of witches and persecution, they, they could have thrown a curse on his family. And with that, the son seen something crazy um, and then fell ill, all part of, because what worse, what better way to get back at someone than to go after their kid, unfortunately? And the father felt that guilt until, I'm sure he probably felt that guilt until he died of not believing or having to take the other side of the fight when his son, you know, said those things. You know, what's your opinion? Um, I can see the where the father would be definitely one way, and that's the only way. Mm-hmm. I leave it open for the son, uh, possible one or two things, several things, or combination of them, is that the son may have been curious about what his father was persecuting. Yeah. And on the side, investigated it himself. Mm. Um, it could be the son, and at that time, they would have probably called him a warlock or a male witch. They would have used whatever name they wanted to at that time, but he could have been someone who did see and experience things, much like an empath or someone we call gifted today. Yeah. And when he opens up to to his father, well, that's a mistake. Yeah. That's a big mistake. Now, the father carrying the guilt, I can see that. Um the mother seeing the son, if the son is gifted, he could communicate to the mother. Maybe, because I believe it is also genetic, the mother could have a little bit to be able to see the son on the horse. Truth. I mean, there, there's a combination of things there that uh, can play together to make that work. The only thing I would have um, a problem with is if he's got an arrow through the heart and um, 
what was it to the head? Uh, axe. Axe or a hatchet? Axe, yeah. Axe. Yeah, considering what it took to uh, make one or something like in that time, they would have taken the axe with them. That's how I and, feel. And cleaned it off. Yeah, I was thinking that too. But it's an expensive commodity, an arrow maybe, but to leave behind, but the uh, make it look like the Indians. Could have been anybody. Well, that's what I, also that too. I mean, in that time, what better way to get away with murder than to make it look like an Indian did it? Yeah, they were a perfect scapegoat. And uh, to go back to... Uh, the kid who liked to who liked to rhyme and pick flowers and walk through the the fields. I, I assume back then it's very possible for somebody speaking in rhyme to almost come off as like an evil speaking in tongues type situation. Yes, because you really depending upon the family at the time. There were mm-hmm. certain groups at that time. You really weren't encouraged to enjoy life. Yeah, and do, doing anything like that was not productive. It was not industrious and. It wasn't something you did, so the child was automatically categorized as weird mm-hmm. to begin with. Yeah, it, it reminded me kind of like even modern times when you have like a, a, guy, a, a father that works at a fa- buses hump at a factory, you know, 80 hours a week and, um, you know, the son doesn't really want to work. He wants to be like, I brought up the electric guitar thing, like he wants to be a musician or he wants to be a filmmaker, an artist, you know what I mean? And the father looks at that kind of like, like what's wrong with you? You know, you, you got to work and live uh, and support your, pay your bills and stuff where, you know what I mean? I almost, I looked at it a little bit like that, almost like that age old tale that keeps happening. Every generation there's that, you know what I mean? Throughout life. And uh, to go back to one of the things you said previous, maybe when he was picking those flowers, he ate some he ate some uh, some special berries or some shrooms out of cow shit, and uh, that allowed him to see flying horses. You never know. Well, I, actually, if you take um, and I don't, it's not in New England, but if you take uh, the mushroom, well, maybe it is the mushroom that uh, they get psilocybin from. They say that alters the brain when it does it, gives you a spiritual experience, and you never really quite changed yeah. uh, afterwards, which is why they're investigating using it for um, people who have mental issues right now and as a part of a therapy. But if he came across something like that, had the visions, started to look at and see things differently, then, yeah, he's the... Uh, he automatically puts himself at odds with his father and actually, you know, cast from a lot of society. His father could have been looking that, you know, my son will never be anything. Um, he'll always be one of these strange ones and throws him in a category of witches. Oh, uh, witches, uh, they pick herbs, you eat herbs, whatever. You know, I mean, it's, mm. it, that, that was a tough one for him. I always kind of feel like the harder the times were, the harder parents were on their kids. What do you, th- you think that's accurate? I think it's true. I think there was the idea of toughening them up. I don't necessarily agree with all that. Yeah. I think sometimes it was just anger and frustration taken out on them. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely, it's definitely, I almost, it, like I said, I think that's an age-old tale, you know what I mean? And him, uh, you know, blaming the Indians... On his death, I think is you know that's very mysterious in itself. You know, I feel like a lot of the the same thing with like witches, where like you know when, when witches go, when witches die, it's not really investigated. The same way that if a dude's found with an arrow in them, 
it's automatically Native American situation, which would drive you got to figure the evils of the world. It's all, it could have been a political thing, even where you know there's certain people that would want Native Americans in in in, in you know I, <laughs> what what would they call it? Just white people. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, I want to be, I want to be like politically correct and not offend anybody, but like pretty much keep the fight between those two, two people going um, by feeding, feeding into it by you know, you know, white folks killing other white folks with arrows or axes and tomahawks and hatchets and all that and. Make it because, like you said, and I was right while you were saying it, I was thinking the same thing. Like, they, they, these aren't, they're not going to Walmart to buy these hatchets, you know what I mean? Like, it takes them months upon months, if not a year, to make these weapons. They're not just gonna put it, stick it in someone's head and then leave it there for like a trophy for whoever to find, you know what I mean? No, not. They're not going to do that unless they are probably unless they are going to set someone up. Yeah, and there has to be some kind of money or some important people behind that because it's an expensive item. So there's a political element in that playing back and forth between the uh, natives and the settlers and uh, the witches and the person who hangs them or judges them. And there's a complexity in there. I can see where he would be around the father would be around to haunt and i can see possibly where the son would be also yeah uh going through that trauma in the home and trauma is something that opens uh up the door for someone to haunt or spiritual energy to linger yeah uh i think there's a very political element to it and like if they were and as far as getting an axe like if you were uh I'll say white people again because I don't know the appropriate term for it, but like, let's say you they went and killed a bunch of Native Americans and they took all their weapons from the dead from the the dead, they would they wouldn't care about leaving that stuff behind because it's really no use to them, but they could use it as like a political advantage. You know what I mean? Well, it would actually be a trophy. Yeah, I guess so. But if you're killing off, let's say you kill off thirty Native Americans and you take all their 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 their, you know, their weapons and their, their like their cloths, their furs, um, you know, stuff like that. Their, you know, knives, jewelry, you know, that I think it, to the right political person, um, it'd be worth it to kind of, who, who's to say how powerful the father was, you know what I mean? He could have been somebody important throughout the movement, you know? Oh, well, yeah, they, they, they could have used it to frame somebody else. You also have to remember, I think it was 1670, Massachusetts increased the bounty. It was a bounty on killing natives, Native Americans. Okay. And it was 1670, 1670, there's actually records they increased the bounty. Hmm. And the way you collected your bounty was bringing the scalp. Yeah. So, yeah, blaming it on the Native Americans, uh, that kind of stands out for the circumstances around that death. With Native Americans being so spiritual, and I guess witches would be spiritual in their own right, maybe not on the same wavelength, you know, maybe more, maybe, you know, claim to be a supposedly more sinister, more of an evil spiritual element to it. Do you think that there would be any tie-in where Native Americans would 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 get revenge for witches, or like be on the be in some type of weird 
in line with them, like, of kind of feeling bad for them that they're kind of being outcasted for their spiritual beliefs? I think at the time they probably had enough of their own problems not to consider it too much. Or relate? I, you think they can relate to each other because they're both kind of demonized? I would say that, yes, um, considering you would, uh, the basic beliefs uh, have a lot of similarities. And if there were communication at all, yeah, they they could have understood each other better. Mm -hmm. But I also think the animosity at the time and the fighting it between uh, the two groups was so much so, I don't think they got much of an opportunity to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Did you have, did you have any favorite stories from uh, this outing? Uh, not really. Uh, <laughs> Hawthorne Hotel I've seen, haven't been in. I know that uh, around Halloween, the place books up full and they have a lot of conventions and special special effects there. Been to a few of the places uh, you've mentioned. Mm -hmm. I really, I do like the seaports though. Yeah. Um, I'm not a big boat or water person myself. Mm -hmm. I tend to stay away from them. But as far as hauntings go, they're a great place to, with the energy there from the sea. And like we talked about the uh, sailors that went out and never came back, the grieving mm -hmm. families left behind. There's... Those are the stories that uh, I got a greater interest in as far as looking at them and saying, yes, I can relate to that, or yeah. I'd like to go visit there. Um, th those are the ones that are like, uh, i say, my favorites. Yeah, I like the Sea Serpent one. The, the House of Seven Gables was pretty cool. and uh, Oh, yeah. I'd probably say the Dogtown one, because I, I, you know, I, could, I could fail for them in that situation. Oh. Uh, Dog House of Seven Gables. If you if you're taking it going to House of Seven Gables, you could do a walk through Dogtown. Um, I would love to be able to just spend time there. And the tunnel, being able to go into that tunnel, I think that there's something definitely there. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I got the book, so we'll just uh, I can we can grab it once everything's once back to normal. We can start. We could do like some, you know, northern, go up to northern Mass for the day or whatever and just kind of hit a couple of the hot spots. You know. Sounds good. Anybody listening, we are, uh, we're using excerpts from uh, Haunted Massachusetts from Sherry Reve. We're only dipping into a couple of the stories. So, I mean, if you dig the stories, go pick up the book. You can get it on Amazon and eBay, and you can probably even get it in the Barnes & Noble as well. We want to give her props and the book props because we are kind of, we're uh, using it as a guideline for certain stories, so we don't want to kind of, we do want to kind of promote people to pick up the book since we are kind of, you know, using some stories from it. But, yeah, you know, that was, uh, we get, we, that was uh, our episode. Um North Shore Hauntings, you know, to, to, to go with our big uh, Haunted Massachusetts kick we've been on. We got a couple more coming. Next up, we got the Greater Boston one. We'll be hitting the Southern Massachusetts, which will be nice. That's over by me. And uh, Cape Cod and the Islands will be uh, the final one. So we get a, three, more, three more installments to this little, uh, this little collection of ghost stories and stuff. Hell yeah. Well, Ray, anything you would you like to say anything in closing? Uh, 
Nope, I think that was uh, that was pretty good. I got some things to think about as far as places to visit. Mm-hmm. Definitely want to do that. Oh yeah, once things once things are back in the good, it'll be definitely cool to kind of go to some of these places. We'll bring the recorder with us, and uh, we'll investigate and we'll, we'll we'll record live from location. Maybe try and grab some audios of uh, we hear anything crazy, or you know, try and speak to some things. And um, you know that'll be fun. Taking it on the road will be definitely a fun, a fun little thing to do. Yep. We should do an H.B. Lovecraft episode too, since he's a local guy. Oh yeah, it, uh, I visited his grave. Whoa! There you go. I got to do a little more research on it myself, but it'll be fun. We'll do a nice H.B. Lovecraft. Uh, maybe we'll, I'll figure out what his birthday is or something, and we'll. we'll We'll, we'll drop it on his birthday, his big B day anniversary. Well, yeah. If you look at the if you look at the birthday and try and go visit the grave, you're gonna run into crowds. It's that popular. Yeah, well I believe that. You know, I also want to go to the Lizzie Borden house, which is super popular too, I hear you. It's like a you get a waiting list for a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I should probably put in some type of request or some a reservation because uh I when I from <laughs> When I first started talking about doing it, if I actually did it then, we'd probably have been in there by now. <laughs> it's been that long since I've been talking about going. Um, but yeah, that'll be interesting to see. And you can bring, there. you're allowed to bring all your your recorders and your, your whatever you want to do in there. They complete, they support the investigation. And that's folklore. That's one of our folklores. One of these days, we'll do an episode on our maybe top three or top five biggest folklores that were that Massachusetts is kind of known for being. One being, you know, Lizzie Borden, and you know, we got the triangle. I want to do a big multi multi episode segment on the triangle too. Um, we're gonna have a, a guest come in to talk about that stuff, but we might wait for. Um, people to be able to be around people again for that because she's local so we might just all three of us link up somewhere and kind of do it do it in studio like but hell yeah another episode in the can Uh, good times good times we want everybody out there to be safe sound healthy you know enjoy life get out there on the sunny days get some exercise in don't wither up into skin and bones and uh you know, read, entertain yourself. Look up some ghost stories uh, throughout the process. I've been contacted by a few people that want to come on the show, which is nice. So once uh, things start move, moving around again, we'll we'll have some guests back on. Um, we'll have the great Audra Morris back. It's been a little bit since we've had her, so it'll be fun to get her back on the show to talk about some things. And, uh, yeah, we'll be guesting it up. But right now you're stuck with me and Ray, which... Uh, it's a beautiful thing in itself. So it's not exactly a stuck situation. You know what I mean? <laughs> but everybody out there, be good. And we'll catch you on the next episode of Mostly Ghostly. Have a good one. <laughs>